All right. All right. So, welcome to the Sangha U.S. Today is, I guess it's for you guys, all Friday evening. <laughs> uh, here, it is Saturday morning, um, October the 9th. So, it's October the 8th in the evening for you guys. Uh, and so, I'm really glad to see so many. We've got uh, uh, several that are uh, not visible. Uh, Robert is here. So this is a good Sangha that we've got going. I would like to see this increase and have more people in it. And I'm really glad to see my friends. So uh, we're talking about something that uh, Christopher had mentioned. We had been talking about it, and I thought that it would be a good, in what he had sent was a really good introduction uh, to the Sangha, uh, the the, the teaching of the Dhamma in a particular way. Uh, so I'll go ahead and read that uh, law again. Uh, it's law number 32, and it says, play to the people's fantasies. The truth is often avoided because it is ugly and unpleasant. Never appeal to the truth and reality unless you were prepared for the anger that comes with disappointment. Life is so harsh and distressing that people who can manufacture romance or conjure up fantasy are like oasis in the desert. Everyone flocks to them. There is a great power in tapping into the fantasies of the masses. Now, basically, what this is pointing out is, is that um, as far as the spiritual life goes, we all start off in a fantasy world. That the reality that, uh, that we start off as children, we start off in a fantasy world. We start off playing with toys, thinking that they're real. And when we... Uh, uh, the reality is, is that it was a toy. When we grow up, that same child playing with that toy, fantasizing that it's real, the fantasy remains the same, and the truck changes from the little toy truck into the big rig, but it's still a toy that he fantasizes as real. Okay, that we have been taught in our lives, in our world, that things are real, and not only are they real, but they're tough, they're dangerous, they're ugly, they're unpleasant. That in fact, in this thing, it says also, life is so harsh and distressing that people, okay, so life itself is stressful and harsh. But this is actually not true. It's not life itself that's distressing is harsh. It's what we do with it. That this is actually a restatement. What he is saying here is um, the first noble truth said in a wrong way. That the, the teaching of the Buddha is, is that life is not suffering, but that suffering or dukkha exists. 
but it is not life itself that is suffering. That that's part of our delusion, that we've decided that life is real. And because it's really real, that makes it tough. But we're adding that, that element to it, each one of us, in a delusionary kind of way. All right. And so because of that, um, all of us start out looking for relief from this um, suffering that life itself has to offer. In fact, in Christianity, they could call that the original sin, right? That we were born, that's original. Now that you're born, you're in sin or that you're born into a life of toughness. Uh, and the surprise is, is that even people who have the resources or the, the financial resources, uh, they try to make it not so bad for their for their kids. For instance, a prince or uh, the child of a wealthy man, the wealth, they think, will protect the child from the harsh realities of the world. And uh, that when the child, though, is growing up, uh, they're not. They can't be protected from it because it's part of the culture itself. And so uh, this problem that we have goes to everybody. It's not an issue of uh, the poor being exploited by the rich because the rich exploit the rich also. That the, exploit, the exploitation is always going to be there because there are always going to be people who can be exploited. And not only that, but these people would rather be exploited than to come out of their delusions. That's the one that's hard to understand, is why would people prefer to be ripped off, charlatanized, hoodwinked, lied to, be ripped off and all of that, when in fact they could be happy instead. Why is it that they choose the most uncomfortable path for themselves? This is something that you can think of for yourself because each one of you now is in the process of making that major change in one's life. It is actually a major turnaround to recognize that we're not going to get the value out of the things that everyone is looking for to get value out of. Because the value is not in the object. The value is always in one's mind. Just like in the early part of this statement, it says that um, uh, the truth uh, is often avoided because it is ugly and unpleasant. Well, truth is not ugly and unpleasant. That's an attitude. That's the salt that we add to the food that didn't come salted. That the first, you know, the plate, you can imagine it, that the waiter comes and he serves the plate right in front of it, and the first thing that somebody does before they ever take uh, a bite out of it is they grab that salt shaker, they twist the knob off, and they dump that whole shaker of salt right on their food. And they do that with every meal that they have. 
and they think that all food is is over salty. We're in fact we're adding that salt ourselves to it. That's the part that's hard for people to understand that the way that the mind works is that we automatically spice things up before we take even the first bite of it. This is actually the teaching of the Buddha, but I'm using this analogy of the salt shaker at the restaurant in the way that the mind works, and that's called Paticca Samuppada. The word Paticca Samuppada means that everything is dependent. And one of the important aspects is to recognize that we really don't live in the actual real world. That if we did, the real world then would be nothing but sensory input. Just like a camera, it can see or a microphone can hear. But the microphone and the camera can't do anything with that input. It's got to be processed. Before it can be understood. Okay, so the uh, the eyes can see and the ears can hear. But if we had no ability to process or there was no processing, all our lives would be would be a set of sounds that we didn't understand and a set of visual, constant visual imagery changes that we still didn't understand. And so we would be lost. This would be almost like what you would say would be the absolute real beginner's mind, just like a brand new baby that's born really doesn't understand anything other than sensation, the sensation of the touch. Babies and little puppies uh, many times can't even see. They're blind when they're born. And human babies can't see very, very much. Uh, as they mature, the eyes will mature. But really what's going on that matures is the ability to process data so that we can see something on the outside and then recognize it. For instance, how is the baby going to recognize mommy's face? How is the baby going to recognize the distinction between uh, mommy's face and uh, little Billy, the four-year-old brother? Well, the, re the way that that happens is because of the repetition that the little baby has to see mommy's face over and over and over again and associate that with other feelings, other touches, uh, warm milk and all of that kind of association. And then the tender infant can learn to recognize his mommy's face. Look at that word, recognize. All right, recognize or recognize means that we see things a second time. We cognize it or we put it in the mind over and over and over again. And so we build up these habits. This is what recognition is all about. We could not live our lives without this. But the important part is, is that that proves then that we don't actually live in the world of the sensory reality. We live in a world of taking in sensory reality and then trying to make sense out of it based upon the past stuff that we've had and then that is the image or the of the thought that actually impacts us, not the reality, not the real world. So in this statement, the truth is often avoided because it is ugly and unpleasant means that the new truth that comes in may or may not be of any quality at all, but the ugly and the unpleasant 
was waiting there in the mind for that truth to pop in so that we could pile that ugly and that unpleasant on top of the truth. That's done inside the mind. It's not done in reality. The reality is, is that truth is just truth. Whether we like it or not, that's what we add to it. And that we're so intent on doing that, that it's very, very easy for the for humans to be manipulated. Part of the way that we are manipulated is because as children, <laughs> this is actually interesting. This is worth pursuing for a moment. When we are little children, we are actually taught to tell the truth. That parents like to catch out little kids lying because sometimes the lies that little kids tell are spectacular. One, the one that I think is kind of cute is um, Al Sharpton telling the story about he and his brother got into uh, the blueberry pie. And here he's got blueberry pie all over his face. And mom says, did you guys get into that blueberry pie? No, mom, we didn't get any. We didn't have any blueberry pie. And there it is all over his face. Okay, so this is what we do is we start uh, lying for self-protection when we're little kids. And then we are taught, no, you cannot lie in our society. Thou shalt not bear false witness when you get it really big in big letters or Maybe you can talk about it in the sense of um, uh, <clears throat> perjury and going to jail and all kinds of really heavy duty stuff. And so we are taught as little kids that, oh, you're not supposed to lie. You're supposed to tell the truth. This gives every one of us kids the idea that, oh, me, the little kid, has just caught, got caught lying and I'm not supposed to. That means that no one else lies. All right. And so we grow up thinking that everyone that we talk to, every conversation that we have, that everyone is not going to lie to us. I mean, how somebody like me, no one's going to lie to me. And because we have that kind of delusion, that nobody is going to lie to me, that means that we just kind of accept what people are saying. To where real discernment would be as we're beginning to practice Anapanasati and beginning to see what kind of wholesome thoughts that we have, we can begin to recognize that other people are also speaking unwholesome thoughts because they're not mindful of the kind of thoughts that they have. In other words, what we begin to understand, part of the waking up of the spiritual journey is to recognize that not only are the masses gullible, the masses know that at some level, and it's the masses themselves that become the charlatans. So we go around lying to each other nonstop, generally, that life becomes a lie. And that when we are um, practicing correctly and beginning to see the difference between wholesome and unwholesome language, we begin to get very good at spotting other people when they lie. We begin to detail, determine the truth as the truth by just listening to what people have to say. 
because often people are in the mode of trying to protect themselves. Why? Because life is ugly. Life is unpleasant. But it actually in this in this thing here, it says life is so harsh and distressing. Well, life itself is not harsh and distressing. That is a mental attitude that we build up about life. Because when we're little kids, sometimes life is harsh, right? Have you ever had some harshness? Have you ever had some unpleasantness? Right. So if uh, we have experienced harshness, that doesn't mean that life itself is harshness. That means that there is an experience of harshness, that this is all happening in the mind. And we can see that stuff by paying attention to it. This is actually an important point then, but um, we can look at it from the dichotomy of, well, why is it then, according to this, that people really don't want to hear the truth? Why is it that we don't want to understand that the reality is just the reality and that almost all of human being, mankind, live in a kind of a fantasy world. But even dogs live in a more real world. I mean, they know what food is, they know what strangers are, and they know what what it is to lay about and do nothing. And humans, for some reason or another, are <laughs> bad on all three of those things, especially the, the ability to lay around and do nothing at all. Because we're told that we're supposed to be busy, we're supposed to do something, we're supposed to perform, we're supposed to produce, and we're supposed to pay taxes to the man. And so we've got to produce, we've got to perform, and um, we're trained that way. And so even each individual, when we are alone with nothing to do and no place to go, we are still looking for something to do. An example of that would be a resort. We've got lots of resorts on this island. Some of them are just uh, simple bungalows because the people want to have a cheap long vacation where they can hang out and do nothing. But there's also a number of places that are resorts. And what they have then is music, a fitness room, uh, more than one swimming pool, and all kinds of other things and activities. They've got elephant riding, they've got horse riding, they've got soccer, they've got uh, tennis courts, all kinds of stuff. And so when people come on vacation, they wind up being very active. They don't actually take a vacation, they just change what they're doing. So instead of sitting at a desk doing and doing and doing, they're out on the tennis court doing and doing and doing. I've heard even the story that when they come off a of vacation, they are glad to get back to work because now that's a vacation from the vacation that they just had. Because <laughs> they really weren't on vacation at all. They got very, very active. You got to make the most of your vacation, you know, so they think. So um, this whole idea then of us staying busy and staying active and doing things all the time fits in with the culture. It fits in with what everybody else knows. And we also have a lot of derogatory language for those people 
who don't fit into that culture so much anymore. Uh, layabouts, lazy, and uh, hobos, vagabonds. These are the kind of language that would normally be used. So what happens is, is that well, if the vagabond or the layabout can somehow find some sort of fancy clothes to put on, like maybe a pope's hat or a robe or a priest suit or something like that, that he can somehow get legitimacy for being uh, a do-nothing. That in fact, that's very similar to what you would find in Tainan, that in Tainan, there are approximately 400,000 monks, more or less, I mean, it's up and down every year, um, out of a civilization or a nation that has about 80 million. So 400,000 out of 80 million is not a really, really major group of people uh, in one respect. And yet, um, the, the behavior of the monk in the orange world is completely acceptable. But that's not necessarily acceptable for someone who is wearing ordinary clothing, just hanging out in town, doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism. He just lives like a Buddhist monk and he will be not acceptable to the community because he doesn't follow the community standards. He's got to get away from the community to get over to the Wat, put the orange robe on and then being a layabout do nothing is an OK thing to do. So. Um, what we can begin to understand is, is that uh, in the West, there is a lot of new criticism. Christianity has been dying for centuries, but it looks like that it's finally hit fifth gear and it's on a roll now in, in the sense of Christianity falling apart and dying. I think, in fact, that politics and social norms and things like that are doing it. But one of the qualities of people leaving Christianity is that they see that that the magic show that Christianity teaches is not real. You know, there's a, there's a whole story around Christianity that has to do with uh, one premise. And that one premise is, is that you can't help yourself that your ugliness and your unpleasant life is life itself and that you're stuck with it. They use it in the sense of, of original sin. And then they come in with their magic elixir, their magic potion juice and says, aha, you cannot save yourself. But if you take Jesus as the savior, then thou shalt be saved. All right. They say that you can't do it on your own, that you've got to have help. Well, that statement that the Christianity is making is the same statement that all of the big things make. When I say the big things, I'm talking about the GREB, G-R-E-B, government, religion, education, and big business. And all of them are in the business of telling you that you need them in order to be happy. <laughs> business will say, You've got to buy our product. Education says you've got to learn what we have to teach. The government says you need us because if you don't, 
either number one, we will not give you what you need, or number two, we will let those people come take your job. So it's either greed or fear that politics is operating on. And it's basically the same thing with the grab, that they're promising things uh, in order to gain some advantage. You could go then so far as to say that in this point about the charlatanism that all of big business, all of big government, all of big uh, education and all of big religion is in fact there to manipulate Barnum's um, sucker that's born every second or every minute. There's a sucker born every minute, he says, which means that there he stands and here they come into his tent and he's going to charge them money to look at something that's not worth looking at. But it's entertaining. So um, the big issue then is that we have to be kind of careful in teaching the truth because a lot of people think that it's unpleasant. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear something that fits in with their fantasies. This is actually what's happened then as Christianity has uh, gotten smaller. The people who are leaving Christianity don't believe in the magic story about how important Jesus is, how high in the sky he is, and how he will save you from your sins, and all of the associated um, stories that come with that, including sky daddies, dead men walking, no sex babies, all of that kind of stuff, people are coming out of it as an institution, but they're not coming out of it in the sense of their mindset. So when they're coming out of Buddhism, they begin, excuse me, out of Christianity, they're looking for something else, and there is Buddhism, a new shiny object on the stand. So what are they going to do is they're going to bring all of their beliefs all of their own magical stories to the teachings of the Buddha. This has been happening for centuries now. That people have been bringing their own um, belief systems to the Buddha. And that means then that a lot of new people who come, all they see is the baggage that old students have brought and they don't really see what the real teaching of the Buddha is all about. We are left with, um, basically, uh, we expect the food to become pre-salted. That's one of the reasons why Buddhism is not delicious to many people is because it's not flavored with uh, the kind of flavoring that they're used to having. So as I was mentioning before about the Thai food, there's a lot of Thai food that really is, let us say, an educational experience. <laughs> that in fact, when I was staying in the Lao temples in the United States, the joke was is that I'm still a student of Lao food. I'm still a student. This stuff is hard to eat. <laughs> 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 this is roadkill. This is really weird stuff that I'm eating here. 
but everybody in the room is eating it and they've all survived for years. I guess I can survive too. It's just not something that I want to eat. Okay, so this is basically how uh, many people come to Buddhism also, is, is that it is strange. It's strange because it's not heavily salted in that way, uh, that it's um, bland or plain, that there's no spicy to it. And so people will say, well, let's go to add some spice to it. Let's have some um, some fairies. Let's have some devas. Let's have some spooks. Let's have some goblins. Let's have some um, hells and heavens and things like this, because that's the kind of thing that we should be having in our religions. And so Buddhism has been layered and layered and layered over the centuries, but especially in Western Buddhism, it seems to have taken an especial magical bend. Which means then that the people that you talk to are uh, uh, people who want to hear about Buddhism, or if you are like most of the, uh, the Buddhists who really get into, we can't shut our mouths about the teaching of the Buddha. The Dhamma is the only thing we want to talk about. And there's a lot of people who um, they would be interested in hearing about the Buddha, but they want it in within the context that is palatable for them. And so Western Buddhism has grown up in the way that it has because it has all of these influences. Basically, these influences on Western Buddhism come from the grab that we were talking about, especially business, that business has actually gotten involved with the teaching of the Buddha, which seems very, very strange. I mean, if you think about it like this, why would you go and spend uh, $2,000 on a 10-day retreat when the only intention for you to go to this retreat is to hang out and do nothing? Why couldn't you just hang out and do nothing for 10 days without having to go to a retreat center to do it? That's kind of strange, isn't it? But that's what they do because they they are looking not for just 10 days of doing nothing. They're looking for something more than that. They're looking for some magic. They're looking for some transmission. They're looking for some attainment. And that the real teaching of the Buddha is basically to not add things. We're not adding attainments. We're not adding stuff like that. But in fact, the real teaching of the Buddha is to subtract, to take away things. Most specifically, going back to that table salt analogy, is to stop salting our food and begin to eat it the way that it tastes by itself. I have an interesting idea about that. Yes, go ahead, Keyshawn. Which is like, I feel like the the Christianity, um, it's kind of still based on that adding things to it, um, like that salting. It's it's kind of still in that realm of um, adding things to life. Uh, you know that we that we have these fears. We have like the fear of death and these consequences and therefore there's these rules that you got to follow otherwise there will be fire and brimstone and you you'll be afraid of that um mm -hmm. 
and that also there's components in the Bible where I, from what I understand, like I haven't really read it very much, but from what I hear, like, you know, certain guys are given like a gift from God and now they could go and conquer and take over the city. Like, do they become liberated by doing that? You know, or maybe Jesus turns water into wine, but why couldn't the people just be satisfied with water? Like, at what point, at what point, you know, from that, from that standpoint, it's like, okay, well, I'm like doing something to fulfill this, this desire um, so that I can be happy. It's kind of like that ordinary position of like everything else that we have in our life, like to do something to get something, do something to feel safe, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Whereas in Buddhism, you're looking at just being satisfied. And so you never have the problem of needing a Jesus to turn water into wine or needing protection from, you know, fire and brimstone because you're not afraid. Exactly so. Yes. So in in that regard, the teaching of the Buddha is absolutely upside down to what our religion and our education and our uh, culture, our uh, governments and our big business is trying to do, trying to teach us, trying to gain advantage, et cetera, like that. And it is always gain oriented rather than freedom oriented. But um, one of the, the things that struck me was a song back in the 1970s. It was a song by Chris Christopherson. It was actually in, in a movie uh, called The Star is Born with um, uh, Barbara Streisand. Uh, no, actually, it wasn't in this movie. It was a Christopherson song, though. Sorry, movie something else. Um, the um, the song is the song about Bobby McGee, and basically, in the in this song, there is a line that says, "Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose," and freedom was all she left for me. All right, now uh, freedom is a major, major teaching in Buddhism. We have that word in the Pali is mok or moksha. But in fact, wat suan mok, wat suan, the word suan in Thai language means garden or forest. Or let us say that in Thailand, they have a farming industry that is based upon the suan. That means that what you do is that you farm the, um, the forest. That in the West, in order to farm, they cut down the forest. But in Thailand, they just leave the forest there and they just go plant this, that, and the other thing all through the forest. And so this is what is a sawan would be a, a, a combination of both a forest and a farm. And that's exactly where I live. I live in a, in a sawan here. Uh, most of the trees are coconut trees. But only about 75%, the other 50 or uh, uh, 25% are indigenous, all kinds of interesting things. There's lum trees and there's um, mango trees and there's also a lot of bananas and ferns and all kinds of stuff here. So this idea of the swan, what swan mok, the word mok means freedom or religion or um, uh, out, getting out being freed from prison, uh, getting out of it. Uh, and so this is the garden of liberation. Watch the one mok. The word moksha is a major 
uh, part of the teaching of the Buddha, but in order to be free, we have to be free from something like the burdens of life. Once you've dropped all of the burdens, then you're free when you've got nothing left to lose, which means that if you lost something, you would have a feeling of a sense of loss. If you've got nothing left that's going to give you the sense of loss to lose it, now you've got real freedom. So the issue is not whether that uh, when you say uh, freedom is nothing left to lose, that means that I don't want to lose what le- what I've got left or that now I'm left with nothing. That Bobby McGee left Chris Kostopoulos and he's got nothing left. That's his freedom. But that's because he's attached to what he would be losing. Really, what we're looking for is the attitude of freedom means that nothing is important enough to feel loss over when we lose it. That's real freedom is when you can let things come and go as they please without attaching to them. So freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose means that we can be free mentally by letting go of all the things that we would be normally attached to. This is exactly opposite than what the entire society is looking for. The society is looking for gain, not loss. And what Buddhism is teaching is let us lose things happily. Let us let it go. Drop it away. And one of these things has to do with the past and all of this other. So the point, though, of this talk has to do with how slow the average person is in coming to Buddhism because they come with the idea that there is something to be gained here. A clear example, Christopher, would be about the issue of uh, fear. That if we are afraid in the West, what we want to do is to get a weapon, find a safe place, go to a protector. In all cases, it has to do with gaining something, gaining a weapon, gaining a safe location, gaining a friend who's got a weapon who can protect us, a mommy or something like this where within Buddhism, it's not that. We're not going to try to gain something because of our, our fear and, for, and get protection. We're going to examine the fear itself and, and let that go. So now we can be fearless and we can be fearless and we've got no weapon. We've got no hidey hole. We've got no protector. But we don't need any of that stuff because I don't have the feeling of fear. So uh, the teachings then about uh, the Buddha is all about subtraction or is by a negative that we talk about emptiness. We talk about um, um, freedom and this kind of stuff to where the whole society is teaching each individual member of society to not do it that way, that you're supposed to gain that you're supposed to get weapons when you're afraid. You're supposed to get uh, protection. So um, this is kind of um, a change around. Even when people become interested in Buddhism, 
they still become interested in Buddhism in the ordinary kinds of things that are that are taught without understanding that there is a real cure here. That um, that you can think of it in the sense of in medical science, you have symptoms that can be eliminated and then the disease can actually be cured. Now, there is a, um, a middle ground between them or maybe an intersection point that it's not a black and white, that this is a cure and this is a relief of symptoms. But in some cases, the relief of the symptoms is so good that it becomes a cure. An example of that is the new medicines that they have for HIV. That originally all they could do was eliminate the symptoms, but they got so good at eliminate the symptoms that they actually were able to get rid of the disease itself uh, because of the, uh, the excellence of the medications. So this is also a way that we can look at the teaching of the Buddha that we're actually looking for the cure for the spiritual disease, not just the relief of symptoms. The relief of symptoms would be that when I have fear, the way to handle that fear is by getting a weapon, finding a hiding hole, finding a protector. Okay, that's just eliminating the symptoms, but it's not dealing with the actual fear, the cause of the suffering in the first place. So when we're practicing with Buddhism, that means that we're actually going to remove the actual cause of the suffering, not just try to stab it over the way that we do in the normal society that we live in. This is going to make it a little bit difficult then to bring um, the society around to the teaching of the Buddha. This is not going to happen easily. This is actually a very, very long, slow process. And one of the ways that I speak about it, which I like very much, is, is that there's a difference between the army, which is for religion. Religious people are like the army. That anybody can come in. We need, we need bodies. We need warm bodies. We need an army. We need a huge group. But within the Sangha, within the teachings of the Buddha, actually what that means is that um, we, we don't need the crowd. We just need a few good men, like the Marines. So there's a difference between the Army and the Marines, and that would be the difference between religion, which is for everybody. Why? Because uh, the religion is trying to salve the wound without uh, curing the problem. That is all symptomatology rather than actual cure. So religions have that level of it, and then the real teachings of the Buddha actually is the curative part that's being kept inside. So uh, it, it just kind of happened this way, uh, but it worked out. Uh, it seems to me it worked out pretty well simply because I was able to get through it. But we can say that the, 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 teach, the real teachings of the Buddha is like a diamond or gemstone that is in a case. Now, the case itself is bejeweled, is quite beautiful, is ornate. But that that package or that box or that jeweled case is not the contents of the case. It's like judging a book by its cover. So what everybody sees of Buddhism 
is like the cover of it or the jeweled box of Buddhism. And a lot of people get really, really interested in Buddhism because of that jeweled box uh, view of it, how beautiful it is, the teachings of the Buddha and whatnot. But that's just the outside. That's the external. That's, in fact, the religion of Buddhism. And it is not curative. There are many, many people in Thailand who are Buddhist in uh, name only. There are also many people in Thailand who frequent the Wat and go on a regular basis. And this would be kind of the, the larger majority. And then there is the third group of people who may or may not ever set foot in a Wat, but they really do know the teachings of the Buddha, and they're the ones who get the most value out of it. So there is um, a major part of the people that you will meet that would refer to themselves as Buddhist. And in fact, now it looks like that there's in the United States people enough on the surveys to say that there's millions, like five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten million people who are <coughs> calling themselves Buddhist. Now, we do have two groups. One would be the Asians. The Asians would be the ones who actually go to the Watts in the United States. And right now there's about 400 of them. But most of the Buddhists that you have in the, in the West are not Asians who attend Asian temples and live in the Asian culture. But it's Westerners who have become interested in Buddhism, but do not have, uh, let us say, the knowledge uh, to find these Asian Watts, to go find out uh, what real Buddhism is about. And so what we find instead is this westernized Buddhism that has come from Asia to the West, not in the traditional way that Buddhism has been spread in Asia. It's come in a different way. So the way that it had been spread in Asia was that a group of monks, one or more of them would be really, really, um, let us say, high quality human being, a noble who really understood the teachings of the Buddha, as well as maybe another monk or two who were on the path, but that they go in small groups from one country to another and then get established. But when they are establishing, they're establishing all three aspects of the Triple Gem. All three means that they've got nobles with them. They've got the Buddha. They've got the real teaching of the, uh, of the, uh, the Buddha with them as knowledge. But then the most important ingredient is the Sangha or the group of monks or the collection that where they're actually practicing the friendship quality. Buddhism, when it came from uh, Asia to the West, did not go through that process. Rather, it came as an intellectual thing from the very beginning. That uh, part of how Buddhism got to the West was because of the uh, Westerners who had gone to Asia. Uh, a, a big issue was the um, East Indian Tea Company that uh, basically managed the country of India for uh, more than a century, actually two or three centuries. And it was the British who became interested in the old documentation. 
so that I.B. Horner uh, was basically in India, but then Riles Davies went to Sri Lanka to continue it because that's where most of the literature was written down and uh, kept in libraries and whatnot. And so they did it an intellectual exercise as well as there's been other groups who have started. I would say that basically the first group in the United States was in the 1830s with Henry David Thoreau, Emerson, that, that small group of people. And that in fact, the book Walden is still quite famous in uh, Western literature as um, a story about how to get away from it all. But uh, even Thoreau though was still highly interested in getting away from the society. So part of his book is actually, I think that it's talking about maybe $2 and something of, of money that it took. And he's actually listing every item that he has in his camp. That he talks about how he ate, that he would cook enough food for a week. And then he would eat while he was living on Walden Pond and didn't have to go any place or do anything. So uh, this kind of Buddhism has been there in uh, America since the 1830s, got really big with the uh, Theopathy Society and, and uh, Anna B uh, Bessett and uh, Matt, no, Madame Vlosky, uh, Colonel, uh, I forget Altman. what it is. Yes, that group. Uh, but that was also about the same time that the British we're going and doing all these translations that wind up in the Polytext Society. And then you'll have T.D. Suzuki and Alan Watts and a few individuals coming over to introduce Buddhism to the West. But they didn't ever come the way that it came in the first place. Well, actually, it did come in the sense that now that we have, uh, because of the Vietnam War, we have a, a great deal of people um, from Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, and because also that the U.S. was stationed in Thailand, there, there's a lot of Thai in the United States. So between the Thai and the Lao and the Cambodian and the Vietnamese, there's been a lot of Buddhist wats and temples that have come to the West to service the um, Asian community. But again, the Westerners don't know anything about it. They still have Western Buddhism that is hallmarked by reading books. That that, in fact, is still the way that you will uh, think that, well, how can a Buddhist teacher become famous in the West? The answer is he's got to do it the same way that everybody else has become famous in the West, and it is by writing a book. That that seems to be the only way that, uh, that things get spread, or at least that's the idea. And so Buddhism has been spread in the West because of um, uh, book reading and intellectual stuff. And the real teachings of the Buddha have not come. All we've gotten was this ornate box. And that box has come to the West almost empty. Where is the real teachings of the Buddha? That's the question. Where are the real teachings of the Buddha? Because you're not going to find the real teachings of the Buddha in your average meditation retreat. You're not going to find the real Buddha on Reddit. At least I haven't seen him there. <laughs> you're not going to find the real Buddha in uh, the book. 
but you might find the real Buddha if you go to the real Buddhist temples where there are monks who have been living the life of the, uh, the layabout, uh, the in, enlightened do-nothing, the noble, where the, who has no place to go and nothing to do and just sits around and enjoys his life. This kind of lifestyle is available for observation, but the Westerners don't go there. They don't go to the watch. They don't go to the temples. They don't go meet the, the actual Thai, the Lao monks. They don't spend any time with them. All they do is read books and, and practice it the way that we have for Western Buddhism. And you can see then that Western Buddhism has this um, uh, magic show that people are interested in. Yes, go ahead, Robert. So uh, one question or comment about that. So one thing I've noticed, at least in Washington, I don't know if it's like this in other places, but the actual Thai and Lao temples are generally out of the city. You know, they're kind of far away. It might be in like some suburb that's quite far outside or in kind of a rural, more rural area. Do you think if the, those temples were to relocate or other temples that are similar to locate like in city centers, that could make a difference? No. <laughs> I think that there's one in Chicago downtown. What was that, Kishan? Huh. I was saying that I think that there is a block in downtown Chicago here. Yes, that's right. That You're wrong on both counts, Robert. You're wrong on the count that there are only forest watch and there are no city watch in the West. And you're wrong also on the count that that's going to mean anything. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think there were only... Forest watts. I did say in Washington it's like that, but there's one Tibetan one that's in the city. But you know, as far as watts go, um, it's it's kind of in the forest here. But that's just here, you know. So we have to be careful about the Tibetans because almost all of your Tibetan facilities are op ran and operated by Westerners. Hmm. They're not. Um, the actual Tibetans, and there's a really good reason for that. Hmm. The United States government visas, that's the reason for it. The hmm. reason wow. why there are very, very few Sri Lankans, there are Sri Lankans, I know some Sri Lankan monks. There are some Burmese monks in the United States, but not very many. And there are some Tibetans, but not very many. When I say not very many in in the sense of Thai monks. There may be about a thousand Thai monks in the United States. How many Burmese monks are there? Maybe five, ten. How many uh, real Tibetan monks are there? Three or four. All the rest of them are Westerners. Mm. Okay, so um, the 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 ability for the Westerners to go and find some real Buddhism is actually there, but they don't go where real Buddhism is to be found. They they find their Buddhism in the places that they would look. So they're finding the Buddhism that they find by looking where they're looking instead of looking for uh, uh, it in, in better places. Also, um, going back to your question, Robert, about why the, the uh, Asians do it the way that they do it is because they like to have a watt that has a lot of ground. 
that there is uh, uh, when you buy a, a property in the city, you spend a huge amount of money and you get very little ground space. Yep. That um, uh, what Washington DC is a really excellent example of that. When I first went to that what it was an old, basically a mansion that was on uh, 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 it was in Silver Springs, Maryland, but it was only a stone's throw from uh, the Washington, D.C. border. Uh, it was actually up 16th Street, and so it was a huge mansion. It had a basement and three stories, and the, the actual the attic was um, kind of a meditation hall, and it was also a playroom for the kids. They had a huge library. What they didn't have was parking. That was a major problem. So on Sundays, that whole neighborhood would just be completely congested with people trying to park close to the what? Um, it was it was not appropriate, but it was what they could have. But uh, by the 1990s, they had bought a large piece of property of uh, further out in Silver Springs that made it a little bit more inconvenient to get to. But now they have room to build a lot of different buildings. The new facilities is huge. It's almost like a university campus. This is the kind of watch that the, that are being developed in the United States and they want land. Uh, there's a lot of issues about um, how can the watch buy the house next door. They almost always start by buying a residential uh, property because they've got monks and they're just housing their monks. And so this is how whites have always gotten started everywhere, but also in the West. They just get a house and put the monks in it and then it just gets bigger and bigger and more people and a few more monks. And so they got to go get another house. Eventually, so, they'll yeah. go stop looking for a house to house the monks and start looking for land where they can really build. Sure. There is a really yes. interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, so thank you. So there is a really interesting um, place I visited in northern Thailand, and I did a 21 day Vipassana retreat there, um, Wat Cham Tong. And there was the main temple, which was kind of like a palace, and it was built for a John Tong. Um, who was in his 90s, and um, and I did get to see him, which was great, but he spoke in Thai, didn't know anything he was saying. Um, but then there was kind of a, another big kind of apartment building, um, almost, that had like a big meditation hall inside of it. Then there was a small meditation hall, and then there were all these houses surrounding the Wat that were given by the owners of the house to the Wat as, as places to stay, or mm -hmm. Western visitors and other visitors. So I stayed in some random person's house, completely clear of furniture, that they had donated to this uh, lot, basically. Um, and all the other Westerners were staying in places just like that. It was really interesting how these people gave up their houses for this. Um, actually, that's quite typical. Um, that um, in Fremont, California, when I was staying there, uh, the, the house that the monks, that some of the monks were living in, actually was a, a lady's house. She lived in that house, and that house was across the street and three doors down or so from, from the watch, so it was an easy walk, about two or three minutes from the watch. 
Um, and that was very typical. She bought that house simply for that reason. Hmm. Was, uh, she bought a great big house so that she could have it for um, uh, as an extension of of the what? There's there's a lot of that that's going on. I have not ever seen that in the United States in the sense of people intentionally buy a house uh, next door to the to the church right. that they attend. But in Thailand, that's very, very typical for people to buy property in the vicinity of the Wat so that their house becomes an extension of the Wat. Hmm. Very cool. And, and yeah. other on that topic, um, so I was a bit put off by the mansion, the big palace for a John Tong. Um, you know, and one of the Thai people told me that they built it for him just a few years ago. He was in his 90s. They built it for him out of respect for him. Um, and it was a gift for him. And I didn't really know what to think of that. So, you know, what what are your thoughts on that? It was like marble floors and, you know, big ornate sculpture. And, and we went there to listen to him talk. Well, let's talk about it from the perspective of that old monk. Do you think he really cared? No. <laughs> Do you think that the Thai people who told you that story knew that he didn't care? Um, I would say yes. The, the woman that told me that she was a meditator there and you know she said we just built it for him as a gift or they built it for him as a gift that was how she right, right. okay so basically it really what it while it is true what she said it doesn't have the inference that a lot of people take from that that they right. built it as a gift for him is the way that it's stated but the reality is that this is an expression of our generosity Right. That's what's really going on is this is an expression of our generosity. And we only use this this old monk as um, um, as an object for our generosity because he's standing as an icon or an avatar for the benefit that they've received from the teachings of the Buddha. Or you could even go so far as to say that old man, that old monk was also an icon or an avatar or a stand-in for the Buddha himself. Sure. And so because of that, they're expressing their generosity. Some of them would be um, uh, saying it differently because some of the people would be building uh, an ornate place like that for merit. Right. That's that's often the case. In other words, the richest guy in town will, in fact, build an ornate temple. But while he is building that temple, he's on the temple site. He is the big man there. He's the construction engineer in the United States. You would just hire some construction company to go do it. And the big fat man will stay in his uh, office and never get the benefit out of it. But yeah, in, well, uh, yeah. but in Asia, when the guy is building that temple, he is there. He's getting the benefit. He's the, the, the top man. Everybody knows and respects him. All the workers are there and everything like that. And so they're actually getting a lot of benefit in the building and the construction of the building that they're making. Uh, and it is all a community exercise. And everybody brings in something that they consider really, really beautiful. And the next thing you know, the whole place is, you know, 
Um, an example of that would be statuary. And uh, you, you probably know what I mean when I say the word Ming vase. You yes. know what I mean by like okay, a jade, like a jade, very, very ornate, made out of bone china, that kind of stuff. You will always find one, two, or three or more of those uh, Ming vase. Uh, some of them are quite large, spread throughout yeah. the temple. Why are they there? Why are they there? They're there because they were gifts from one family or another that wanted to give something really nice, really beautiful to the temple to um, uh, to express their appreciation. Sure. Well, it to was where, funny. Oh, no. Sorry. Uh, I have a yes, question sir. that connects with that. Uh, regarding the initial uh, discussion of Law 32, um, is there a place in the practitioner's life for uh, romance and a certain definition of fantasy in the understanding that it's a part of play because uh, talking about that, uh, those gestures seem like romantic to me, not in a bad way, but like you said, expressing generosity. Mm -hmm. Yes, and a lot of it has also to do with uh, so the underlying emotion is the, is the feeling of generosity. But there is also, as you're mentioning, a lot of magical thinking in there. That there so is magical thinking in no. the value of those vases, because in fact, the temple could do just fine without them. In fact, that could be a place for somebody to sit down. We don't need those Ming vases, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's... Yeah. Go ahead, Robert. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to a great podcast the other day with this very top-level therapist. I think I mentioned it to you on our last call the other night. Um, and she said something really interesting, which is that, you know, and, and Eric was just talking about how it's kind of romantic almost, you know, which I don't think necessarily means magical, right? It's kind of like you're so in love with the temple or the monk or the teacher or whatever that you're, you're bestowing this generosity the way you might to a partner, right? Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, this therapist in the podcast said she said something really interesting at the very start of it, which was that the erotic is the antidote to death. And I, I think partly what she meant by like one way you could interpret that from a Buddhist perspective is finding intimacy with all things and friendship with all things is the antidote to death, you know. And um, I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that comment, because I thought it was such an interesting comment. And um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that quote. Okay, make it again so that I got it clear. The erotic is the antidote to death. The erotic. Erotic is the antidote for death. Yes, and by erotic, she doesn't necessarily mean sexual. She also means like, you know, like just like lots of passion and joy. Weird, and right. Kind uh -huh. of, yeah. Okay. Um. I would say that that could be possibly true in some circumstances, but that it's not generally the case because Anicca Vata Sankara Upata everything is temporary, everything is subject to, to old age, death, and decay. And so the erotic um, is not. Um, let us say the cure for death, 
but it is the escape from the thought and the fears of death, that we will go to the erotic, we will go to great extremes to not have to deal with the things that we don't want to deal with. And fear, go ahead. Thank you. So um, one thing that she was using as a story to explain this is she was the daughter of Holocaust survivors. And she would talk about how in her community, the ones that were doing really well were the ones that were, they were in love with something, you know, and that's how they helped get through the Holocaust was, you know, like Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, right? Like Mm -hmm. they, um, you know, they wanted to see their daughter, they wanted to see their wife, you know, and they just kept thinking about that the whole time. And that allowed them to have a reason to live. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she said that in her own community, which is all other children of Holocaust survivors and Holocaust survivor families in Belgium, um, they were all uh, the ones that were doing well were those that had kept that fire alive about other things in their life of, oh, you know, I really want to write this book. I really want to do this, do that, you know, and and using mm-hmm. that kind of passion to that, which you could think of as wholesome thoughts, too, in a way, which is, also gets back to Eric's point about the fantasy. Right. You know, like there are, I think, sometimes like a wholesome sort of fantasy that can get you through something, you know, in a way. But it's also kind of a fantasy, which is against the teachings of the Buddha. So I'm curious to hear your Well, there are other reasons for people to survive situations such as the Holocaust and that I imagine that if we did enough research, we would come across even one, at least one Holocaust survivor that has this story to tell. And that is, is that I was able to stay alive in that situation because I had the main intention of strangling the warden of this prison. And I'm going to kill that son of a gun if it's the last thing I do. Okay, so revenge is also an adequate motivator for keeping somebody alive. I will get you. I will stay alive so that I can return the favor. Okay, so this is actually a motivating factor and we can actually immediately see, well, that's unwholesome. And the answer to that is, well, if it kept him alive, was it all that unwholesome? <laughs> and the answer to that is, is that was that a, a better thing to do is to instead of just lay down and just restfully just pass away? We're not supposed to do that in our culture. In fact, there's actually laws against it in many places. You can't just enjoy the day that you've got to either have some sort of fantasy. um, I want to see my kids or I want to write a book about this or something like that. In fact, I want to write a book about this. That may be revenge motivation as much as, um, but both of those are based in greed or ill will. And Mm. greed and ill will are the primary motivating factors that we have in our society. But they're not the only motivating factors that we have. But in fact, friendship could be one. I imagine that some of the people could survive the um, uh, the Holocaust simply because they spent their time not worrying about how bad the situation was for themselves, but they were actually there caring for others. Sure. And while by caring for the other people, they were actually able to survive themselves, but they weren't intending to survive. They were just intending to take care of, to be friends. Yeah. All right. So 
those are also motivating factors. And I would say that friendship and taking care of other people would be of the three motivating factors that we talked about. That would be the one that would be noble. That would be the one that would be high class. That would be the one that was wholesome is I'm staying alive simply to keep other people um, from going over their own edge or whatever. Yeah, I believe that there actually is an, an anecdote. I might be misremembering the story, but um, I think it is from Victor, Victor Frankl where people would give away what some people give away what little they had. Um, so it, it seems like it's a connection to you know, you, you can't control the outward circumstances and what's happening to you, but you can control your attitude or how you respond within those circumstances, even when the circumstances are extremely dire. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not necessarily the, the, the situation that's extremely dire, that's still uh, finding it ugly and unpleasant. Rather than just this is how it is. Um, an example of that would be in the, the Western world and primarily I know of for sure in the United States. The idea is, is that. When people do long hurtful things, when they break the law. That they should be punished. And that the uh, the ultimate punishment is to kill somebody, but the next best thing to that is by putting them into solitary confinement. And there's an awful lot of evidence that uh, solitary confinement is, in fact, a huge amount of torture for some people. But not for everybody. And then, in fact, uh, going into solitary confinement, I've thought about that from time to time because it's actually a good mental exercise. How would I handle going to prison? Can I be friendly with the guards? Can I give all of the food that I would normally be eating in normal life? Can I give that food one parcel of it at a time to the biggest, toughest dudes in the prison to make friends with them? Always give your dessert to the worst enemy in the prison. Okay, so then the, the point of well, what happens when you're locked up in a cell all by yourself? The answer to that is, wow, now I can watch my own cable news. <laughs> now I can be here alone and really get into it. And so in, in a way, uh, for some of us, we can look forward to the very, very worst thing that they can do to you. <laughs> the very worst thing that they can do to you is put you in solitary confinement. And that sounds wonderful to me. I've been in solitary confinement before. It was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Robert, go ahead. I see you're wiggling your hand. Thanks. Um, so, you know, it's funny on the solitary confinement. I've actually thought, you know, as a Dhamma dude, uh, for a while now, um, that if I were to go to prison, I would request solitary confinement because I think <laughs> I think that would be kind of nice to just sit there and just be peaceful rather than around all these, you know, bad people or whatnot. But the other thing is that's what Nelson Mandela did. Exactly what you're talking about is he became friends with all the people in the prison and he came out of prison. He's there for like 20 years, 30 years or something, a much happier, better person than he was when he came in. 
you mm-hmm. know, and that's partly why he's such an inspirational figure is that he was able to do that and make friends with the people at the prison. Right. So he took the, the lemon of prison and turned it into lemonade. I imagine that um, that that could have happened. I'm not sure if it did happen or not, but I imagine the opportunity was there. And some of those old rabbis were pretty special dudes. So I imagine that some of them could make some lemonade out of Auschwitz. I'm sure. I'm sure I should read about it more. I've, I, I studied it a lot when I was a kid. I went to a Jewish uh, school and mm-hmm. uh, we had a whole long unit in the Holocaust and it was very dramatic and also very interesting. And so I should go back and dig up some of those books from those days. Um, but I was yeah, a I mean, little bit older when I got into it and I found out, in fact, that uh, uh, as some of you know, I worked for IBM Corporation for about three years when I was a young man. And then it was later when I found out that IBM, the American corporation that did punch cards and computers and was very heavily involved with the United States Navy during World War II with um, uh, gunnery equipment, IBM ran Auschwitz. IBM Corporation was the major reason why Hitler was able to do what he was doing was because they had a bunch bunch of punch card equipment and they kept track of everybody through punch cards in the 1930s, that it was automated and it was automated with an American um, uh, technology and guess what? Financed through American money. Hitler was financed by American money, most specifically Prescott Bush. Have you ever heard of that name before? I have, yes, I've heard about yes, this story. That's the grandfather of George H.W. Bush. Right, I think the grandfather of W. But the yeah, father he was the grandfather. Right, sorry, you got it right. So he was the father of, uh, of what, number 42? Well, it's interesting. The, um, um, you know, I, I one time, so I've met a good number of Holocaust survivors in my life. Um, and one thing I've noticed is some of them are just extremely sweet people. Um, like there's one woman in my community who's still alive and she, she was in Auschwitz. She still has a tattoo on her arm and, um, extremely nice person. And I find that very inspiring. And there's another woman that I met who came to speak at, uh, at my university at, that I was going to at that time. And, and, um, and she survived the Holocaust, and she was one of the people that I think Dr. Mengele did his experiments on, and, and she is completely fine now, but she wrote a book about forgiveness, and her whole like thing, the reason she was speaking at the university was about how important it is to forgive people, and mm-hmm. this is someone that underwent some of the most horrible things that any human being could. You know, and um, I just found that very lovely and very inspiring. She's a very lovely lady, and I took a picture with her and stuff. And, and you know, just, yeah, I think it's amazing how sometimes people come out of that environment, kind of environment, just better. Maybe, I don't know if it made them better or worse, but, like, they got a lot out of it, whatever it was, you know. Well, let's look at that issue for just a moment. And that is, is that in the Western culture, partly because of Christianity, but from other points, Um, forgiveness is a really, really big issue. Forgiveness of your sins, I mean, it's built into Christianity that we're supposed to forgive. Within Buddhism, 
we have a completely different perspective of that. And that is, is that there is nothing really needed to forgive, that in fact there is a place for it. And that is, is that if a junior monk has offended a senior monk, then it is up to the junior monk, according to his own growth and the friends he's got around him and other things like that to, to teach him. But it is his job to go to the senior monk to ask for forgiveness. But the point is, is that the uh, uh, senior monk is not interested because he is not carrying the grudge that needs to be forgiven. Hmm. Okay, the point is, is that he's forgotten all about it. And so naturally, when the young monk comes in to get forgiveness, it's going to be easily given because there's no issue anymore. All right, now let's take that to the Holocaust and to this woman who is there in the Holocaust and is in having the thought of, oh, these German troops are terrible. Oh, these prison guards are bad people. I'll get them someday. But then she recognizes, wait a minute, I don't have to have that thought. I can have a better thought, a thought of forgiveness in my mind instead. And so she's actually, in a way, doing Anapanasati by doing the forgiveness, because forgiving is a much wholesome, more wholesome thing to do than holding thoughts of revenge. And this is why these old ladies become really sweet, is because they've able to been able to change their mind out of a mind of hatred and revenge and wanting to get uh, back and having it is, never mind, it's all right. Elsewhere, it's not really that bad. I'm still alive, am I? <laughs> you know, I've got some friends here. We're okay. The slop that we eat is not delicious, but it keeps us alive. Okay, so this is another attitude to have, is that attitude of forgiveness. But a better attitude than that is just forget about the past. Let's deal with this present moment. Because this present, even if this is in Auschwitz, this present moment can't be that bad, can it? No, it's probably going to be pretty good. Damarato, we're, yes. we're, we're talking about millions of people passing away. We're talking about torture and, and like horrible, horrible, like trauma and horrible things that happen to people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm curious where like where you know re- responsibility falls on this where each individual one of us is responsible for how we behave, how we feel, how we think in whatever situation that we find ourselves in. That's the responsibility. Each one of us has the responsibility of handling this particular moment. And you can say that uh, in this conversation, in some cases, I treat Auschwitz quite lightly. And that can be quite upsetting to some people. How dare you have a frivolous attitude about Auschwitz? And they can get really angry at me for that because they're holding it as something very, very heavy and dear to them, including the millions of people who are suffering. All right. Well, 
there is going to be suffering. Dukkha exists. It really does. And it's got a main cause to it. That main cause is because we want things to be different than they are. And that we go around doing a lot of damage, trying to make things better. But anytime that you're making something better, you've destroyed it, the uh, raw goods that it took to build that something better. That Hitler, in fact, was trying to build a better world, wasn't he? I mean, his intentions in the beginning were admirable in a way. I know that that's a hard sell. I, I think that... They're like the <laughs> Nazism, like they have a, uh, you know, from their perspective, a certain like, uh, well, yeah, world that they are trying to build that doesn't involve a whole section of, of people and is specifically geared for the yeah, so that they would all feel better. Right. The white people will feel better when they don't have to look at black people. I've heard that before. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like that that's most of the 20th or I've, the century that we're in right now seems to be um, geared in that direction of these these philosophies of, of trying to build these that seem seem to, to be a result of our philosophy and where we have uh, ended up. But um well, there's another way of looking at it, though. I understand the way that you're looking at it, and, and, and one of the ways of saying it is is that um, life is tough, that um, the world is really on a downhill course right now, and that um, uh, we thought that things were bad at one time, but that, now they got worse. You've probably heard that expression, um, uh, cheer up, things could get worse. And I cheered up, and sure enough, things got worse. <laughs> That's a great song, by the way. <laughs> All right. But there's another way of looking at it, and that is, is that over a longer period of time, there are cycles. And that things go up and things go down. And that uh, th actually in the earlier part of this century, World War II was really tough times for a whole lot of people. And then you go back into the 30s, and the 30s was really, really tough time for a whole lot more people. And then you have the Roaring Twenties, but the Roaring Twenties wasn't roaring everywhere. The 1920s was really, really heavy duty. There was still a lot of disease and whatnot in the 1920s. Then, in fact, the further in time you go back, the worse things got or the worst things get as you begin to uh, to recognize. I mean, things were in the United States pretty heavy-duty bad in, 19, in 1860. But then guess right. what? In 1861, they got a whole lot worse. <laughs> so the whole point that we're saying is, is that things are up and down, and they're up and down, and they're up and down. The question is, can you ride these cycles happily? rather than feeling bad because the cycle went down. But as each, each individual is up to us. Now, there's another way of looking at it. For instance, the way that Martin Luther King looks at it, 
to where uh, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. A better way of saying that is, is that human ignorance is startling profound. But it's getting a little better. <laughs> and we can say that in any particular point in time. There's been major, major changes. For instance, um, Robert, I'll get right to you. We had the invention of writing, cuneiform, hieroglyphics, and that was world revolutionizing. That in fact, it it uh, it was writing itself that brought animal husbandry and um, um, agriculture. Agriculture and animal husbandry could not have happened in ancient civilization without being able to keep track of how many goats and sheep and the crops and what was raised and all of that. So writing was a major profound change. The next really major profound change happened all almost at the same time was the, the discovery of the new world and the printing press. So now we have not just writing itself, but we have a mass way of uh, distributing that information. Well, you'd think then that Gutenberg Press and, uh, and printing the Bible and all of that kind of stuff was a good thing, right? Guess what? It caused a hundred years war. It almost destroyed Europe, especially places like Germany. Germany took a big hit <laughs> in, in um, uh, the 1500s. This was, in fact, what the pilgrims were all about, is, is that there was a major war. Why? Because people with the literature were waking up to all the lies that they had been told through the dark in the Middle Ages. And they didn't like it a bit what the Catholic Church was doing. And this calls the Reformation or uh, the Age of Science, the Age of Enlightenment, and all of that kind of stuff happened because of printing press and the availability of knowledge. Guess what? We're going through that same revolution again with the Internet. That's happening yeah. right now. Now, one of the qualities of the Internet is, is that you see so much bullshit, so much garbage out there. But that's going to eventually get cleaned up. We will eventually clean it up so that we can, in fact, trust the web the way that we would trust a library. In fact, most of us know how to do that already in the sense that I know what websites to avoid. And I know which websites are going to have some good information on it. OK, so uh, in that regard, that arc of the universe bends towards justice. Actually, it doesn't bend towards justice at all. It bends towards knowledge. And knowledge then is part of the liberation. Why? Because we can uh, the knowledge then teaches us this stuff that we've been clinging to is painful. And so it can be dropped away. And so I can see that, in fact, the Internet is going to be instrumental in bringing wisdom to the masses. But it's going to be a long, slow process because the masses are not interested in uh, the reality of the situation. They're interested in fulfilling their delusions. Yeah, another parallel between the printing press and the Internet is that uh, apart from the Bible, the other text that got more, uh, more disseminated was the Maleus Maleficarum, which was like a witch hunting manual. And it was the printing press that uh, 
jump-started the whole uh, witch hunt. And Yes, uh, there was a lot of stuff like that. There was also some other literature that, uh, uh, that actually started the war. There was actually literature that started Protestantism. Now, which is the worst, Protestantism or the Inquisition? <laughs> I'll leave you <laughs> Why? Well, you can say that, well, Protestantism is just another religion. Oh, no, it was Protestantism, the protest, that caused that Hundred Years' War. And a whole lot more people died because of the protest than they did because of the Inquisition. But yes, both of them were, um, let us say, the original or the... Um, uh, the the dirtiest part of the printing press was that it caused wars, it caused um, insurrections. Okay, well, you can say that, then that it's the web that has caused all of the dirty politics that's happened in the United States, or actually all over the world right now. What is that? Well, it would be Facebook and the disinformation about the COVID vaccine. It would be the Fox News. It would be uh, Putin's interference with the election that he was able to do with the Internet. But he couldn't have done that interference without uh, the web. So you could say that the web itself is a mixed bag. It's got good and bad things to it. But really what we're looking at is, is that, no, this is actually uh, changing the diapers or cleaning up the afterbirth or whatever like this, that we can say that ultimately the web will be of enormous benefit to humanity. But right now it's polluted, it's dirty, and it needs to be cleaned up. But guess what? It's not ever going to be completely cleaned up. There will always be magical thinking because we will always keep having new people join our society and they start off as babies, as infants with magical thinking. We all start out in magical thinking. The question is, are we ever going to get the facts? And if we do get the facts, are we going to accept the facts? You guys are really lucky because you're being exposed to the realities of the situation, according to the Buddha. The question is, can you accept it and say, yeah, that's right. I can find a new way to live. I don't have to do it the way that I was taught. But we will always have that group of people who understand the reality of the situation and are willing to deal with it and gain the benefit from it and the freedom. But most of the people in the world will stay ignorant. I do not see, even with chips in the brain, with AI, or with any of that other stuff, that we're going to remove greed, ill will, and delusion from the human mind. I just don't see that. We will always have greed, ill will, and delusion, and that will be the major uh, part of the population. But the number of people, let us say, then the percentage might begin to change. In the time of the Buddha, the number of people com uh, who lived as compared to the number of people who really got it was very, very remote. In fact, you could say that well less than 1% of the people. Now in Thailand, with about uh, four or so 100,000 monks, 
they I have heard I've been told and this is not just told um, as someone just speculated to me and now I'm speculating and respeculating but brother uh, I've heard this several places over and over and the number that they normally use is about 25,000 there is about 25,000 nobles in Thailand is the story 25,000 nobles in Thailand and the Western mentality of Buddhism is is that the teachings of the Buddha have been lost and there are no nobles left. How many of you have heard that story? Yeah, I've heard it. I've, I've really heard it. Yeah, that that is in fact what Western Buddhism is all about. This is what pragmatic Buddhism is supposed to be about is that, that the original teachings somehow have been lost. And it is up to us, uh, Johnny come lately's in Seattle, mm. the pragmatic group, to try to find out what the Buddha actually did teach. That nobody in Asia knows what the Buddha taught. This is the Western mentality, that we're the ones who can solve the problem, and they don't even recognize that there's no problem to solve. What the, if there is a problem, the problem is, is that they yet have not heard the actual teachings of the Buddha or if they have, they haven't been able to accept it because of their own confirmation bias. Go ahead. Sure. So uh, a couple of things. Oh, sorry. You want go ahead, Eric. No, I just wanted to comment that uh, in the Guru Viking podcast, uh, Steve made an interview to uh, I don't remember the person, but he wrote a book about American exceptionalism which was a tendency in America, American spiritual teachers to, um, as a way of validating their experience or their, yeah, their method, uh, they used their personal lives and like frame themselves as exceptional. So I think that what you were mentioning is linked to that in the sense that uh, it doesn't, we cannot prove which was the original way. What I can prove is that uh, my way has worked for me, so it will work for you too. So it's kind of a contradiction, but that's sort of the the picture. Right, but that's common in all of humanity, that even the, uh, let us say, your average farmer in Thailand will say, well, why doesn't the U.S. government do this, that, and the other thing? And guess what? He was right. If the government would do this, that, and the other thing, it would probably be better. In other words, what I'm saying is, is that we all have the attitude that the way that we do things, even though it sucks when we really talk about it, when we're out in competition or thinking about it in general, we aggrandize it, we make it bigger or we make it better, like uh, uh, American exceptionalism is not American. You want me to tell you, all right, here's some. British have exceptionalism. I mean, what uh, the, the sun never said so, the British Empire. Talk mm -hmm. about German exceptionalism. I mean, you have Germany and Hitler and World War II and all of that. Also, you have uh, Saudi Arabia exceptionalism. All right. India is very, very big on exceptionalism. We're the most religious country in the world, so they say. 
So it's not necessarily American exceptionalism. That's just one uh, coat of paint or that's just one color of it. That in fact, it's the human that thinks themselves exceptional. We do this with animals. That in fact, uh, here on the floor beside me is Pum Pui. She's my best friend, but she's a dog. Now, how many people are chauvinistic against animals? Most humans think that they're better than dogs. Most people, in fact, we when we really want to put someone down, we call them a dog. If you really want to put them down, they talk about their mother being a dog. Okay. And yet there's nothing wrong with dogs. That's only just human exceptionalism. Or you could think of it in another way is that this exceptionalism you're talking about is nothing really but territorial instinct. Is my group is good and that group over there I'm not sure about because I don't know them. But because I don't know them, I can make up all kinds of bad things about them and paint them with that. Because I don't really know who they are. In other words, fear of the unknown. And so it's actually an instinct that we're talking about. Okay, American exceptionalism is just an expression of the territorial instinct. Go ahead, Robert. So uh, two questions. I mean, first, Chris, he raised his hand. So I don't know if he has a question or Christopher. Yeah, Chris, yeah did Christopher, I think he pushed a button for raising a hand or something. You got something, Chris? Well, yeah, go ahead, Robert. I'll wait until you're done. Okay, right, thank you. So a couple of questions. So one is, you know, you were mentioning the 1860s, the 1940s and other wars. Mm -hmm. You know, the philosopher Hegel, you know, argued that that the way the conscious, the evolution of the consciousness of humanity works is there's a paradigm. And then um, there's a lot of contradictions within that paradigm. And those contradictions slowly expose themselves until the society collapses. And then the new paradigm arises. And so the examples he used was like ancient Greece, you know, was very libertine in its culture. And that was great. But eventually it it allowed it to collapse and be taken over by the Romans. Right. And mm -hmm. or by the per Persians, the Persians took over lots of stuff. And then the Persians were way too militaristic. And so um, and not libertine at all. And so eventually they collapsed and that was overtaken by the Romans were more of a balance between libertine and militaristic. And mm -hmm. then the, the process goes on into the present and each with each evolution, you know, Hegel argued the society was was becoming wiser and better and, and more and freer and consciousness was evolving and becoming more free with each level that it would go up, even though there would be new contradictions. And so, uh, OK, um, yes. Yep. Uh -huh. Well, <clears throat> one of the ways that we can say then is, is that as humanity grows in culture, grows in knowledge, grows in technology, etc. like that, we will merely grow in sophistication of how we destroy our society. How do we destroy our civilization? We'll get very, very sophisticated in doing that, but it will happen that societies fold. There is not one society that's lasted. All of them fall away. The one in the United States, we have this, this idea of kind of permanency. And yet the United States government is only, what, less than 300 years old. Well, it's also the oldest government in the world right now. 
present that's still reigning. The Constitution is older than any other form of government. So I think we're a little arrogant about that. But in terms of as, as a civilization, it's it's a young civilization. But in terms of a government, it's the oldest right now, which is well, you could go so far as to say, though, that the French, even in the revolution, did not change that much. The aristocracy that was in the uh, Louis the Sixteenth court survived. The ones Until who Napoleon. got struck, huh? Until Napoleon, you know, Napoleon mm-hmm. really changed it a lot. But mm-hmm. you know, uh, and so there are wars and whatnot. But France is still France. England is still England. So I don't know where this American mentality is about our government is the oldest. That in fact, if you look at the way that the British government has changed, the American government has gone through similar changes. And sure. so if you can say that the United States government is um, is this old and it's the oldest, but it's been going through the same kind of changes that the British government has been doing. So I would call that as a, a chauvinistic, narrow minded view but in fact if you want to look at it that uh, in one particular way of course the the nation of uh, thailand has had the same form of government long before the united states then in fact the 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 major point that we need to look at in uh thailand would be in the 1760s 1770s that kind of time when there was a Burmese invasion, this is when all the gold was taken out of Ayutthaya and taken to uh, put on the Shwedagon Pagoda in, in Burma. There's a lot of history behind that. But it was in the, the um, so the question is, did the Thai government get enough government going by 1776 to make Thailand actually older than the United States government? And there was a great deal of um, of evidence to prove that the nation of Thailand, after its recovery from that invasion from Burma, but just because Burma invaded, uh, doesn't didn't change that much in Thailand anyway. That you could say that that Burmese uh, invasion in the 1740s, um, uh, 1760s, did not change Thailand that much, and then in fact Thailand is much older than that. So that's not a really uh, substantial argument to say that the United States is the oldest nation, but it certainly is a point of pride for the Americans to, to, I mean, with all the stuff that they've got to be ashamed of, they can say, well, at least we're... (laughs) Sure. Yeah. In a way, it's just grasping at a straw. I don't believe it. Sure. So a couple of points. So one is, Um, The reason I brought that up about the collapse was to ask a question of, you know, do you think war can actually be good sometimes? That was why I brought that up. And the second question I have. The answer is, is that wars are real and they happen. Why are you in there judging them as to whether it's good or bad? Because by doing so, you're causing yourself your consternation that you don't need. Sure. Let's look at the Peloponnesian Wars, for instance. Was it good or was it bad to have the Peloponnesian Wars? It just was. <laughs> Who knows? You know, why even ask such a stupid question? In order to start an argument, because I'll argue with you about it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I just thought it was an interesting question. But Well, that's, a, oh, that's the point, though, uh, yeah. that we go around asking 
ignorant questions about was war good or not, where in fact we have no control over war. There's not one of us in this group that's going to actually start a war where a lot of people die, but we start wars inside of our own mind on a daily basis. Sure. So the question is not, would was the Peloponnesian Wars a good or a bad thing, or how about the Carthagian uh, Wars, or maybe um, the war between Athens and Sparta, which went back 500 BC, okay? Asking questions about was that a good war or a bad war is a ridiculous question to ask. That was a pretty good war. We wouldn't have the 300 movie if they didn't have that war. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, That that one, by the way, was a different war. I haven't even mentioned that one because that was that was when the the, you mentioned it, though, about the Persians, the Persians invaded um, uh, uh, Greece. That was. When was that? That was about 300 B.C. That was later. That was not uh, Socrates' day. That was that was later. Yeah. Sure. The battle, so, battle Thermopylae, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Thermopylae. Yeah. So, so, go ahead, yeah, so Robert. My, so my other question was, um, it's kind of a comment, kind of a question. So, you know, I think one reason that so many people have so much anxiety today is because the world is changing so quickly. And it seems like in terms of the major structures of our society, you know, technology and government and all of these things, like it's just changing so fast. Everything is changing so quickly. You know, people don't know what the economy is going to look like in five years, let alone one year, let alone 10 years. And I think that's created a lot of anxiety for people. Um, Whereas, say, you know, 50 years ago or 20 years ago, it seemed a lot more slow moving and and reliable and consistent things did at least. So then I mean the major institutions and I'm not talking about the Anicca of daily experience, which is obviously always Mm -hmm. going on. I'm talking about like the major society uh, institutions. And it seems like, like things are on kind of a train and the brakes are gone. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So I know, but that's because you're looking at it in a very, very minor way or the microcosm or, um, Uh, as things go up and down, we can only see that because we're riding that roller coaster that the roller coaster is going down now at this point in time. And the, the mentality is, is then it will always go down because it's going down now. But if you get off of that roller coaster and stand back from it 100 yards or so, you can see the thing going loop-de-loop-de-loop-de-loop-de-loop. So if that's the case, then maybe I don't even want to ride that roller coaster. Or if I do, at least I'll know that it's going to uh, have a, an ending place that's exactly the same that, that the starting was. And it's all doing a loop-de-loop. Now, here's the point about what you're saying. And that is, is that it's not that things are happening faster but rather that it's the knowledge that things are happening is increasing. It's because of media. In other words, you can sit in your room in in Washington State on an island and never turn the TV on, and things will not be moving. The, the What's moving Absolutely. is the information flow, not no, the no, events yeah. themselves. 
I have a hilarious story about that. So last year in 2020, I came out here for COVID to the island once COVID hit in April, you know, well, it hit in March, but you know, April, I came out very early April. And it was so funny because my daily experience was everything is the same and nothing is changing. Like I just go outside and for everyone else, I live in a really rural, beautiful island here in Washington state. And there's not that many people around. And I'd go outside, I'd walk five miles every day. I'd see one or two people and they're not wearing a mask, of course, because it's outside and there's no one there. And, and if it weren't for the internet, I would not have known that COVID was happening. I would not have known about the George Floyd, the, you know, all that and, uh, and, and all the protests and stuff. I would not have known about anything if I didn't mm-hmm. have the internet or the TV, you know, I don't watch TV, but, um, you know, and so it's so funny because the internet would stress me out because it's like, wow, everything is changing all the time now. But if I turn the internet off, like it's the exact same path that I walk every day, you know, everything, the people are really happy and nice out here because it's the Island, you know, everything's exactly nice and the same, but the mm-hmm. broader world seemed like a chaos. And it was a really weird but very cool experience to, to, uh-huh. and instructive to, to see that. Exactly. And the reality is, is that the real change is the amount of information. That's what's changed, not the fact that things are changing differently now than they used to change. Right? That things are always constantly in flux, constantly in motion, constantly going here, there, and the other place. But now people are, uh, because of the media, just like going back from the web, back to Gutenberg's press, back to the cureform writings, that in fact, what happened when people, when writing was invented, people got a whole lot busier. Why? Because they could count the number of sheep that they had and write it down and know this was the number of sheep today and that number of sheep tomorrow. And where's that sheep gone? Now I've got to go looking for him. If I hadn't been able to write down that that sheep was here, (laughs) I wouldn't have remembered that it was missing and therefore I wouldn't have gone to go look. In other words, I was fine with my ignorance there in a way. Ignorance is blissful. Because that amount of information we think is important. If we can begin to handle information in large quantities without any of it being important, then we can be wise and happy. If we restrict the information itself, then we're just going to be um, ignorant. And we may be blissful up until the point that we have to deal with reality. But the better way to do it is is to live in the real world and uh, live in the real world, not as if it were important, but as if this is just what's happening. Wars happen. Information happens. Your choice is, are you going to live your life happily or not? Because in in some ways we can't even control the amount of information that's coming. I mean, uh, when I was in first grade, the amount of data that uh, the the six-year-olds had in my day is different than the amount of information that the six-year-olds have to deal with today. Yeah, but totally. also, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Um, it's also interesting. So, you know, I my, my uh, I've trained my algorithm on Facebook 
to show me very positive things all the time. And that's one place where I get all the nice stuff I share in the Sangha Skype channel now is from Facebook. And, and, you know, for most people, they see a lot of crap and BS on Facebook, you know, and, and so I think it's actually a way that you can develop wholesome thoughts is by training the algorithm, by only liking positive posts, following positive pages, like just going out and doing that and really focusing and friending positive people that post stuff like that. Like I have a lot of friends that I've met in my spiritual journeys that like to really post positive stuff. So I think that's maybe another way we can get wholesome thoughts is by just, you that's know, That's a good idea, yes. Mm -hmm. The reason why the internet, uh, especially Facebook, is so loaded down with crap is because individuals put a lot of crap on Facebook. Where does that crap come from? Out of their own mind. So if you can generate some positive thoughts and some positive stuff, maybe that's what we can do uh, as a kind of a, of a side project of let's clean up Facebook by putting some positive stuff on it. Yeah, I see great. I have a very I have a very pleasant time when I go on Facebook. I see stuff about dogs. I see science stuff. I see real, really nice spiritual posts, you know. I, Alan Watts, you know, whatever. I see great stuff on there, and and I really enjoy going on there now. And I used to really not like it, you know, but now I really like it, and it's really great how that's happened, you know, in training mm -hmm. the algorithm. Well, that's just another clear example of you create your own reality. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's not reality that we're creating; it's our understanding or our view of reality. The reality is just there. There it is. Is reality an algorithm? <laughs> Go ahead. Is reality an algorithm? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that algorithm can be expressed in a simple uh, formula of cause and effect. The Pali word for it in the time of the Buddha was idiopapajayata. With this, there is that. Without this, there is not that. That is how the whole thing operates. And it operates uh, in a very, very few primary laws. The law of gravity, the law of electromagnetism, the, uh, uh, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Those things are doing nothing but in combination with each other. And that in combination with each other is, in fact, the cause and effect and the cause and effect. And so we've got it down to just five things. Cause and effect, gravity, electromagnetic, strong and weak nuclear forces, and that's all there is. But look at the complexity that we've come up with, with just those five items. Every molecule <clears throat> is compounded because of the interactions with those five items. The way that electrons and uh, that, that weak nuclear force, in fact, is the thing that really runs the place. That is, in fact, the running of the electrons around the nucleus. That's where the looping is. And so everything comes back down to just these primary forces. All right? If we understand that everything really is simple, that everything is just operating in, in a turmoil of cause and effect. 
One of the ways that I would say it would be that you've heard about the idea of things got started with a um, uh, a big bang. 13.7 billion years ago, there was a big bang. You've heard that story. Mm-hmm. Guess what? The big bang explosion that started and just started 13.7 billion years ago is still in operation. We are still in an explosion. It's just it feels like this slow motion because your awareness is is um, uh, big. But to the galaxy or to the universe itself, it's still exploding. It's still expanding. It's still going. I mean, the, the explosion is the dust has not settled. Literally, <laughs> we're still in a big bang. We're still in an explosion. And in that regard, you can say, well, what is an explosion? Then that means that everything is in turmoil. A whole lot of energy is going on and things are just in mixing and, and matching and bumping into each other and all kinds of things. Well, that's the reality that we live in. The question is, can you enjoy the show? Can you enjoy this explosion that we're in? Because you can't control it. That's what magic is all about. Magic is is trying to control something that we cannot control, and we want to control it in order to feel secure. If you feel secure automatically, you will then be able to live in the explosion that we call reality happily because we're not afraid of it. Sure, it's going to kill us, but that doesn't mean they have to be afraid of it. I can die happily, too. So we're, we're still in an explosion. Everything, and, and when we look at it that way, we recognize that things, in fact, are happening at a, such a vast level that, um, that cause and effect is so fast that, that the, the law of cause and effect actually determines the speed of light. And the speed of light, as you know, is pretty darn fast. But something's got to be even faster than light to cause light to have the properties that it does have. So something is happening way down at the level of not trillionths of a second, but uh, one bazillionth of a second are things are happening. In fact, things are happening so fast that we'll never be able to measure how fast things actually operate. But what we can do is we can open the mind to the flood of all the stuff that is happening all around us. That in fact, that's what, uh, uh, going back to what Robert is talking about, it appears to the world and most people in the world that things are moving really fast right now. The The reason that they feel that way is because there's a lot of data, a lot of sensory input, a lot of knowledge, a lot of input that's happening now. But the world is actually operating at about the same frequency that it's always been operating in. And that is the frequency of cause and effect. And that not much is really changing. In fact, that's the way that's kind of a, a humorous way of looking at it. The only thing that doesn't change is change. But wait a minute, even change is changing. <laughs> Everything is in flux. Can you enjoy the ride? Or do you have to make it different than it is? That's the question. Can you enjoy the ride? 
going back to that law number 32, you can see how many people there are that don't like the ride they're on. They don't like reality. But they think that the problem is the reality itself. And so they want to escape into delusion because reality sucks. But really, it's not the reality that suck. It's the problem is, is that they're the ones who are sucking on reality. You've heard the story that life sucks. Well, that's because we're sucking on it. If we would stop sucking, then life wouldn't suck. Now, would it? We're sucking. We want things. We're trying to grab hold of it. Why? Because we're unsatisfied with the way things are. And so we're constantly sucking. But by constantly sucking, we get the idea that it's life itself that sucks. No, it's not life that sucks. It's me that's sucking. I'm the one who's doing all the sucking. And if I'd stop sucking, I could enjoy my life instead. And so um, actually kind of the point of this talk could be that um, you cannot save the world or all of those people out there because all of those people do not want to hear the simple truth. They do not want to hear the liberating truth. Have you seen uh, the movie The Matrix, Damarada? Uh, bits and pieces and whatnot. I think, in fact, there's three of them. Yeah, on the, uh, the first one. So, the reloaded you know, and whatnot. There's different matrices. Yeah, I, I don't care about the second or third one, but the first one is great. But the uh, you know they're they're all in you know cocoons or whatever, and you know being used as batteries by the machines. But um, you know when they get released from that and they're into the real world, there's the one you know bad guy in the movie who uh, makes a deal with the robots and, you know, he's, he's looking at the stake and he says, uh, I know this isn't real and, you know, I know this is all a fantasy, but, you know, it still tastes great and I just want to forget all the real world and be put back into my little cocoon and forget everything. <laughs> it's kind of, when I read that uh, law, that's what it kind of reminds me of. It's like, you know, I don't want to hear about how it really is. I just want to, have the imaginary fantasy world and, you know, and, and not think about anything that's really happening right now. Precisely. That is, in fact, what Hollywood, et cetera, is all about. That's what a lot of the web is all about, is never mind <clears throat> your troubles because your troubles are real. Please come to our fantasy world where you don't have any more troubles. And the fact is, is that that fantasy world is actually the trouble itself. Right. That the mistake that we make is, is that we're trying to escape from reality to where, in fact, no, we're just trying to escape from our delusions of reality. And where we escape to is just another delusion. And so we escape from one delusion to the next delusion to the next delusion, where, in fact, we could be really free just by accepting reality the way that it is. Go ahead, Robert. So that's actually a criticism of spirituality in the East, is they'll say, oh, those those ascetics, you know, those, you know, in the in in uh, Rishikesh, you know, and those those people in Burma, you know, sitting 12 hours a day, they're just trying to escape reality. That's why they're doing that. 
you know, and what do you, what do you, so they actually call these types of things, the escape from reality, not the, the, the society that they've been indoctrinated by. So I'm curious to hear what you think of that. Ah, who defines reality in that case? <laughs> the, uh, the, the white collar people that are going to a job in an office somewhere. <laughs> ah, so in that case, maybe the guys who are just sitting under a tree or on the floor someplace just chilling out, he's the one who's living in reality, and the white-shirted people who are going to the office and are miserable but having a high salary, maybe they're the ones who are living in the delusional world. Right. I heard a doctor say that once about spiritual people. He said they're just trying to escape reality. He's Indian and from India, and he said that they're just trying to escape reality. Well, maybe they're trying to escape into reality out of the culture that he calls reality mm, sure the question is who right. defines reality yeah. <laughs> right hey Dr. Mark, i had an experience today when i was uh talking to the boss you mentioned uh working and stuff so uh he was like he called he called me back and he started apologizing. He was like, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I was a bit intense uh, there, whatever. But I just didn't elaborate on the word intense. I saw your message. You guys, Pardon? Yeah, he, yeah, he said that he, he, was, he was apologizing for being intense. But I, but I just really, uh, you know, I, no, I had to cut him off. No, did he define what he meant by intense? In other words, did he actually say it or did he just say the word intense? Because the word intense is a kind of a catch-all word and that he might use the word intense and <laughs> yeah, get was, one he thing. He was just trying to water down, he was just trying to water down what he actually did. But anyways, I was, okay. I didn't really care because like, I'm already okay. So I just told him every, you know, I just let him know that he's okay and I'm okay and it's it's Friday. Have a good Friday. <laughs> like I was like, I don't really care. It's fine. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm curious, uh, Keyshawn. So after your two weeks out here in Washington, and you went back to your stressful work environment, um, how did that change, or did it change after your couple of weeks clearing your mind out? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, you build, develop sati, and you could see a lot of what the mind um is doing and so then you can start to change your mind and have more wholesome thoughts more often cool thanks yes including walking on logs as opposed to walking on uh, ridges and uh uh things that go bump in the night or not bears and all kinds of stuff that was a good time yeah and the bump in the night, I guess, at the office is the boss. <laughs> oh, it's yep. actually the, the boss walking down the hall. The, the boss in the mind. Uh-huh, the boss That's in the, the real mind, boss. exactly. Because <laughs> the actual boss is pretty harmless. <laughs> that's That's hard for most people to see, that the boss that we have is actually just another human being having the same kind of problems and suffering that everybody else has and that he is not superior to you that everybody is you, go ahead it's, it's funny you say that because I, that's actually something that i said to him 
Um, cause like in the prior discussion, he had said, uh, you know, we're, we're not on the same page or something like that. But then when he was apologizing, I, you know, and I said like, um, everything's fine. I said that, you know, actually I think that on a deeper level, we, we really are on the same page here in that way. <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah, I saw that. That was good. Yeah. I don't know if he, he knew exactly what I meant by that, but yeah, maybe. Maybe I think he did. I think he Well, it was a way of making a connection. It did he didn't even have to understand it exactly what you were meant, but you were making that connection that we are connected, that we are friends, that at a deeper level, everything is okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, a way of looking at it is um, like the ocean. That at the surface level, there is a lot of turmoil, a lot of waves. But deep down, things are easy going, not so much trouble. Mm-hmm. So this is and so when we recognize that if we go a little bit deep and, and stay off of that, the surface turmoil, that basically the surface turmoil that we see is not a quality of the ocean itself. It's the quality of the wind on the surface. Or is our thoughts, our thoughts are our turmoil. That when we stop having turmoil thoughts and start having easy thoughts, then it's almost like sailing on a placid sea. There's no storm. The storm is always in the mind or is always on the surface of the ocean. That under the surface, there's no storm. And so when we get a lot of information that's coming in a hurry, that seems like a storm because there's a lot of information and it gets the mind all fluffy and and, uh, waves and all of that kind of stuff to where no, that information is just wind. It's only on the surface that deep down inside you're okay. Everything's all right. No problems. No worries. Get off of the surface and get into the uh, the subtle part of your mind. Take a deep breath and just relax. That's all there is to it. And we can see then, going back to this law number 32, that people are trying to make the surface of the ocean placid. And they can't do it. Then, in fact, all they can do is just make more wind. So the very act of trying to make things settle down actually stirs it up. The better thing to do is to do nothing at all. And when you do nothing at all, there's no more stirring, there's no more wind and things will settle down. But so long as you're trying to force things to settle down, they don't settle down. It's our own force that's keeping things from settling down. That's Go ahead, that's, a, Jack. A, that's a preliminary there seems like a preliminary teaching in a lot of mindfulness training. They talk about the snow globe analogy. How do you get the the snow globe to settle down? You don't shake it up. You just you sit it down or you let it sit or how do you clear mud from a pond? You let the mud settle to the bottom. You do mm-hmm. not. Um, yeah. Let the gravity do its job. 
Because you cannot get mud to settle to the bottom of a pond any other way than the gravity. I don't know of any other way to do it. <laughs> it's just let things settle. Just leave it alone. The more we try to make it settled, the more we stir it up. So, yeah, that little, uh, what did you call it? The snow blow? Snow globe. A, yeah, a snow globe, like... Uh huh. Water with a little little speckles in it. No, right. it's a snow. It yeah, a snow scene. Right, exactly. And you you shake it up, and then everything the snow is all over the place. But over time, it settles down. This is in fact what we want to practice with with meditation. But in this regard, we're thinking every thought that we have is just more wiggling or more shaking that keeps things stirred up. And so when we have more wholesome thoughts, the wholesome thoughts will be everything's okay, everything's fine, we don't have to stir things up anymore, everything's going to be okay. And then things wind up being all right. But our society teaches, oh no, you've got to be in there stirring stuff up. You're never going to get anywhere if you don't stir stuff up. And so we wind up with a whole society full of people who are all stirred up, all shook up inside. And all we have to do is just settle down and do nothing and things will settle off. Go ahead, Robert. Yeah, so there's, um, you know, some people would like to say that anger is actually, and I don't agree with this at all, I'm just quoting other people. They'd say anger is actually wholesome because it can cause change. You know, and, you know, my shaman said, you know, no, get happy and then get and then be successful, you know, because if you're happy first, the success is much more likely to be wholesome than if that success comes out of anger because you're likely mm -hmm. to hurt people. And that's just going to create more problems. And they'll come with their revenge and cause even more problems. And then you'll get yep. them back for getting you back. And then there's even more stirring. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, then, and more anger. And um, more anger, right. And and uh, the story is of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Well, there's a Hatfield and McCoy dynamic in every town. Yep. Um, with the shamans and the indigenous shamans, you know, in the Amazon, part of their training, like my shaman, uh, he drank ayahuasca every day for four years. And that's clearing the mind out first, you know. You know, alone in the jungle. He did it alone in the jungle, you mm -hmm. know, for four years. And that's seclusion. That's clearing the mind out and then go out and, you, you know, you can lead ceremonies and help people, you know. And well, I think four it's completely years in the, the right. woods may have had more influence than the ayahuasca. Maybe. <laughs> or maybe it's both, you know. <laughs> it's probably both, but yeah. Well, with, with a lot of psychedelics, they talk about set and setting being really important. So you're in that ideal secluded setting, yeah, I would I would believe that you're benefiting more from the seclusion, from the taking the time to do an internal exploration. I, I didn't even know you could do that every day. I mean, uh, don't you get diminishing returns on psychedelics? Well, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's why I said that he was probably getting more value out of the seclusion and being in the jungle 
um, that in fact that might in, in fact be another word that's badly translated out of the Pali when the Buddha says go to the forest. Ah, that's wrong. He says go to the jungle. <laughs> yeah, the go jungle's a dangerous place. You know, there's there's anacondas, there's jaguars, there's mosquitoes, there's all piranhas, all kinds of stuff. You know? Ah, but it's only danger when you're not looking when you're not looking, when you're not watching, when you're not observing. Yeah, for him, for him, it's a lovely place because he knows yes, that like exactly. the back of his hand. It's, you know? it's, it's only for the Westerner who feels lost in the jungle that they think that it's dangerous. Right. And in fact, the real danger, again, is in the mind. Did you hear about the guy in Thailand that got lost recently, I think? Uh... No, I don't know that particular story. I've I've heard stories of, I mean, this is a big nation. We got 80 million people. We got some bad actors here in Thailand too. That was actually a big uh, surprise for me at one time, because when I first come to Thailand, every night that I spent was at one temple or another. I stayed and watched Su and Mok, and so my whole view of Thai people were what goers. Then I wound up in Bangkok, and boy, was I surprised. Thai people are real people. I thought that they were all temple dudes. <laughs> there was a picture I saw a while back. It went viral in Thailand. You've probably seen this. And it went viral all over the world of a monk on a private jet with a Gucci handbag. And he's a Thai monk. Did you ever see this? No, but um, I would not expect for him... Uh, hmm, how to say it? The jet more than likely was not in his name. The jet more than likely was of a patron of his, and that the patron gave the monk the Gucci bag. That it wasn't the Gucci. The, in other words, you're associating Gucci bag and private jet with the monk, where in fact the the monk could have been nothing but just a passenger. Right, he was, he was a young guy. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Was was he flexing it? Uh, <laughs> it seemed yeah, like it's, it in the picture. Yeah, uh, I can find it. I'm gonna put it in the chat. It's so much a part of the culture that normally when something happens, uh, the Westerners only hear the worst aspects of it. An example of that was uh, several years ago. There was a monk. After he died, they went into his quarters. And we're completely surprised that the entire room was completely filled with money. He had great big bags of coins. And inside of those bags of coins were little bags of coins. All of the money that he had uh, in that room was in small denominations. Now, people, when they hear this in the West, they would hear, oh, what a greedy man that is to keep all of that money. The answer is no, he was really an old man and people were giving him 20 baht today and 20 baht tomorrow. All of those coins came from the people. Um, basically, if somebody's 47 years old on his 47th birthday, he will make 47 bags of coins and the coins in that bag add up to 47 baht. And he will give that 47 bags to 47 different monks on his 47th birthday. This is part of the superstitions of Thailand. 
So a number of monks wind up with huge numbers of bags of coins. What are we going to do with them? We got no use for them. We just throw them on the floor there and they wind up in a great big pile because nobody cares. But when the Westerner hears about a whole room full of money, they say, oh, what a greedy person. No, the reason that the the room is, if he were really greedy, he'd have a great big bank account someplace or Mercedes-Benz or something like this or that or the other thing. The fact is he's got all this money because he doesn't need it. He doesn't want it. There it is. And he just oh, threw it in. Uh, okay, so the story is actually worse than what we thought. So the monk was actually a fake monk. And, ah, uh, and that's another point. Right, that that happens in Thailand. That a lot of the really bad actor monks wind up being not actually ordained monks at all. They're pretending to be monks to gain some advantage. Right. And what, what do you think of like the celebrities that or not like celebrity politicians in Thailand that'll become monks? Like, uh, or is that one guy, Suthap, uh, Thog Zuban? He became a monk um, after his uh, after his whole uh, political campaign and it went badly or something. And he went and became a monkey. I guess he's a really corrupt guy from what I read about it. Like, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I can't think of a better place for a corrupt politician to hang out. Maybe some of the noble Dhamma will rub off on him. And in fact, he probably knew that, that that's a good place to go. But there's one thing about it is, is that he may be a corrupt politician. That's one classification. But then there's the classification of did he get caught? And was he, in fact, a criminal? Because if he had been caught and the and the government wanted him, to put him in jail or something, then he would be unacceptable to the Sangha. That one of the things that you, in order to actually join the Sangha, you have to be free from debt and free from anything that anybody wants from you. In other words, if the authorities want you, then you should go to the authorities and deal with them. And when you finish that, then you can come be a monk. If you've got kids, go raise your kids, get rid of that obligation. And then after they're 18, come be a monk. Okay, so, uh, but we do have fake monks in Thailand. One of them that happened quite recently, this guy got caught, uh, and that it turned out that he was not a monk at all, that he would go out on Bendabat because his family was poor. And so he would dress in a robe and go out on Bendabat and get enough groceries for his family for the day, and then he'd take the robe off. And he got caught at it. Hmm. Why? Because normally monks go in groups of twos, threes, and fours out on Bendabat. When you've got one solitary monk by himself, that's suspicious. Mm. And so, um, yeah, there, <clears throat> there are commonly uh, laymen in Thailand who dress up as a monk for some advantage or another. That happens. And when they get caught, many of the lay people will say, oh, bad monk. No, it's not a bad monk. It's a guy who's bad person dressed as a monk. And so that's you know, another way yeah. of looking at it. Go ahead. So it's interesting, getting back to John Tong with the big palace. You know, when I first saw that, I had just been there, you know, like for a day or two, you know, it's just the very start of my retreat before the retreat even started. Um, 
And I, my initial thought was that it was like the, how in the U.S. we would have these mega pastors with their big mansions and all of this. That was my initial thought. But as I stayed there and saw how wholesome and nice it was, I said, no, that's not what this is at all. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. A uh, little transformation in my viewpoint I had there. I was still curious about it, but, you know, I, I didn't think it was bad, you know, at all by the end of my time there. I thought it was totally fine. Right. So <clears throat> that's one of the things then to look at is, is that there's all kinds of information or news that may not be correct. I mean, they talk about fake news all the time. Well, fake news is not new. Fake news has always been there. It's always been there. We're just now, because of the internet, are kind of flooded with new information that we didn't have before. The technology has given rise to um, a vast amount of information and that as Dhammadudes, we have the responsibility to begin to discern what's wholesome, what's not wholesome, what's real, what's not real, what's a lie, what's not a lie, because in fact the truth is not uh, ugly and unpleasant. That's the delusion, is is that the, the facts are unpleasant. We don't like the way things are, we want to make it different. And the real issue is, is that can we change our mind? so that we can allow the reality to be reality without calling it ugly and unpleasant. Begin to enjoy things the way they really are. Reality is reality. Ugly and unpleasant are optional. It sounds like they're labels that you put on top of it, or it's secondary to what is actually happening. Yes, are not happening at all. The reality is, is that all of that stuff was not in reality. It was only mental. It was always only mental. Right, just completely fabricated, made up. Mm-hmm. Almost everything that's a danger is not dangerous. We just think that it's dangerous because we feel afraid. It reminds me of the... Uh the monk walking down the road that mistakes the rope for the snake and gets all Mm -hmm. scared and worked up thinking it's a snake, spending all this time worrying and fretting until he shines a light on it and realizes, takes a closer look and realizes what it actually is. Exactly. That's, that actually is a metaphor for the whole practice of meditation. The whole practice of Anapanasati is to shine a light on that stick to see it's not a snake. <laughs> that life is not dangerous. Life is okay. Not a problem. And yet we also know that there's a whole lot of charlatans out there who are able to take advantage of people because of the people themselves think that reality is ugly and dangerous and unpleasant. And so these people can be manipulated. I mean, the churches are literally full of them. And occasionally the voting booth is full of them. 
There is a quote from the Holocaust survivor I mentioned who focuses on forgiveness. Uh-huh. And I just found it. It is, I'm going to put it in the chat. It is, there is beauty in everything and in every one of us. You just have to look for it. Precisely. That's exactly right. You got to look. You got to look for it. You got to look inside to find out that everything's okay in there. <laughs> All you have to do is clean house, clean the garbage out, and the room is empty and it's beautiful. Well, this has been a long talk. We've actually been all over the place uh, with the theme of this um, issue of the ignorance that the masses have that keeps them in suffering because they're creating that suffering with the delusion that the truth is ugly and unpleasant, that life itself is suffering. In fact, no, life is not suffering. Reality is okay as it is. The problem is, Human attitude. So let's go ahead and finish that. Anybody got anything else to say? I think Chris has had his hand up for a really long time. Although maybe he already asked it with his matrix uh, uh, question. Who who had his hand up? Uh, Christopher. Chris. Oh, he's. I think he's checked out now. Okay. No, he's still there. He's just got his mic off. Christopher, are you there? Yeah. Okay, Kishan's come back. (laughs) (laughs) Christopher, do you have your hand up still? His mic is off, but his uh, uh, photo up in the right uh, right hand upper corner shows it's got a circle. So anyway, um, we'll finish this now. Anybody else got anything to say? Eric, I'm really glad to see you. I'm actually glad to see all of you, especially Keyshawn and uh, Zach, Robert, Patrick, Parker. Good to see you guys. Great to see you, too. Good to see everyone. What was that, Keyshawn? I said, this is a really good way to spend a Friday night. I couldn't really think of a better way to do it. Right. Yeah, we got some friends. That's what. And I encourage you to communicate with each other, to share the Dhamma, to uh, uh, practice teaching Dhamma to each other. To enjoy. So we'll see you guys later. All right. Thank you. This has been a great talk. I really enjoyed the group. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.